Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we'll read the whole psalm together. Hear the Word of God. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of His wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, He shall lift up the head. Amen. Father God, we thank You for this Your Word. And it is our desire to rejoice in it, to worship You as we uh, seek to explore it. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be our uh, uh, gift of illumination in our minds that we might understand it and love it and cherish it and follow it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the first part of this psalm and we saw that uh, doctrines like Christ's deity and His humanity, His life, death, and resurrection, uh, the fact that He has a king, uh, He is a king, and uh, the timing of His kingdom, they all have profound uh, ramifications. Uh, sometimes these doctrines affect us without our realizing it, but more often than not, we have got to really self-consciously grab hold of these doctrines and begin to live consistently with them. A lot of times, we Christians are inconsistent with our doctrine, just like the uh, drivers that I talked about in, <laughs> in India last time are living inconsistently with the, 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 the lines that are painted on the streets. And our focus last week was on the implications of Palm Sunday. Today I want to look at the implications of His resurrection and ascension. What is Jesus doing up there at the right hand of the Father? Uh, is He simply um, working as a priest, uh, interceding for us? That's a very critical doctrine, and every branch of the church uh, affirms that. But is there more that He does? And I think the answer to that question uh, has, or at least it should have um, and make, huge changes uh, in the way in which we live. He is a king, verses 1 through 2. He's a king who rules graciously in his priestly role. Uh, verses 3 through 4, he's a king who judges all rebels, verses 5 through 7. And as we begin to explore this passage, I just want to encourage you to respond to God's Word. This is one of the things we try to teach our children. Uh, don't just sit there passively, but respond. This is God speaking to you in His Word here, and respond uh, appropriately. Sometimes it'll call for repentance, sometimes worship and adoration, sometimes praise and encouragement and hope and love for the Lord, but let's uh, make sure our hearts respond to Him. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on point number six because this is, I think, the least understood. Point six says that Christ's reign is gradually and progressively advancing, which logically means that Satan's kingdom is gradually and progressively losing ground. Now, there are a lot of people who don't believe this, don't even believe we are in the kingdom, uh, they deny the uh, aspect of progressive 
um, advancement because they think, no, when the kingdom comes, it'll come instantaneously and perfectly at the second coming. And they deny the aspect of advancement because they think things are getting worse and worse to the point where the church is eventually going to be extinguished. Now, let me give you a sample quote. One very famous Reformed author, I'll just pick on our own circles here, uh, he said, there will be comparatively few true believers upon earth when he comes again. True faith will be found as rare as it was in the days of Noah when only eight persons entered the ark and in the days of Lot when only four persons left Sodom. Okay, his version of Christ's manifesto is, I'll try to build my church, but the gates of hell will eventually prevail against it. I mean, that's exactly the implications of his theology. Now, when controversies like this come up, a lot of times people just get impatient and they say, who cares? You know, what difference does it make? I'm just going to be a pan-millennialist because I'm convinced it'll all pan out in the end. But we saw last week that it won't all pan out if the church is not active because God works, what, through volunteers in the day of his power. And it won't all pan out if the church does not have faith. And we can't have faith if we don't know what God's promises for the future are. And it's knowing God's promises for the future that instills morale within His troops, that gives us courage and faith and hope. And so it really is very important to talk about this because what we believe does impact us either positively or negatively. Let me just give you a quick example. General Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. And uh, that was really an important battle. It was the turning point of the whole, uh, the whole war. And when the battle was over, he spelled out by code, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Now, the problem was that the fog set in right after he had spelled the words, uh, Wellington defeated. And the troops everywhere were just so demoralized. And uh, there was great mourning. But eventually the fog cleared and he spelled out the whole thing. Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Well, that one a little bit of the phrase made a world of difference. And there was not only rejoicing in the streets in London and elsewhere, but uh, the troops then were bound and determined they were going to finish this off uh, once and for all. And we need to spell out the whole message of Palm Sunday and of Easter, uh, of, of Resurrection Day. I don't like the word Easter because that comes from the goddess Ishtar, so let's uh, do away with that. But Resurrection Sunday and um, Palm Sunday and uh, all, all of the, the, the days that go beyond that, if we really understand those, it should instill hope and courage and faith within God's people. And so that's my goal today. There have been many soldiers who have willingly laid down their lives for a good cause if they believed that this... Uh, was going to be able to be won. Uh, for example, the soldiers under Robert E. Lee enthusiastically charged into battle against enormous odds. When you look at the disparity in the numbers of soldiers, it's just unbelievable the courage that some of these people had. And they did so because they trusted their leaders, they loved their cause, and they actually believed the battle was winnable. Uh, so they just charged in these battles. Now, with the death of Stonewall Jackson, it kind of took some of the wind out of their sails. And I find it significant that Jackson was uh, shot by one of his own soldiers. See, we are not defeated church today because the enemy is so strong. That's not the case at all. 
We are a defeated church in the 20th, uh, 21st century because the church has failed to get its act together morally and theologically, and we're shooting ourselves. That's the reason. What you believe about doctrine has a profound effect upon your life. So let's look at the evidence. Verse 1 says this battle is winnable. It's promising a time when all enemies are going to be under Christ's feet. That means he wins. Verse 2 reinforces that. Verse 4 assures us that our general will not relent. He will not give up. Then verses 5 through 7 make it very clear which side of the battle you better be fighting on. It's clear who wins this psalm. Jesus does. Now, what about the second side of the equation? Because there's two sides that many people doubt. Will this be won all at once at the second coming, or is it going to be won over the course of history? Well, let's look at the evidence again. The word till in verse 1 implies a long period of history to make enemies Christ's footstool. It's not uh, going to happen suddenly at the second coming. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 uh, quotes this and indicates the order in which different enemies are going to be killed. Uh, but it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and that's going to happen as Christ begins to come back. But every other enemy is put under Christ's feet prior to that time. And so it's a process, according to 1 Corinthians 15. That word till is important. Now, we've already seen that verse 2 implies enemies are not conquered overnight because he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Enemy, he's, while he's ruling, there's still going to be enemies uh, for at least a period of time. The enthusiastic volunteers in verse 3, they're not enthusiastic because they're a majority. We saw at the time of Pentecost, which this, I believe, is referring to, there was only 120 disciples in that upper room, and yet they're enthusiastic because they are convinced that the Great Commission can be won as they are endued with power from on high uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, then verse 3 uses three metaphors or images to convey a gradual process. One is a womb which indicates conceptions, beginnings. Uh, it's a place of initial growth. The second metaphor is mourning. The womb of the morning indicates the very beginnings of the kingdom. <clears throat> the very beginnings of the morning. And so this psalm indicates when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, the morning of the kingdom was just beginning. What does that mean? Well, for Westerners, uh, we don't immediately uh, recognize this because... We count days from Roman way from midnight to midnight. That's not the way God counted time. Uh, God didn't count time from midnight to midnight or even from morning till night. He counted time from evening to evening. Their day started at 6 p.m. the following day. So you start all the way back in Genesis. God creates the world, but it's completely dark. And then God creates light, and He says that light is now... Uh, going to be separating between night and, and day. And he says the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning, third day, etc. And so the way God counts time is um, from darkness into, into light. And so this is his pattern. And this is his pattern for history as well. Um, history is not running down into darkness. The darkness of the Old Testament is giving way to the dawning of Christ's kingdom. And by the way, if you're just want, wanting to run that through, there is no end to this metaphorical day because when the day is done, then we're going to be ushered into eternity. 
Now, by combining those two images, the womb of the morning, he's powerfully signifying a number of ideas. Uh, One is that it's not as if there wasn't life before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. There was life, but it was in the womb. Uh, Wonderful life. Uh, Womb speaks of growth. What comes out of the womb has to grow up as well. This image speaks of beginnings, and what is beginning is the light of the messianic kingdom. Now, some objections that people give is, doesn't the Bible say that things will grow worse and worse during the last days? And that's absolutely right. During the last days of the Old Covenant, leading up to 70 A.D., the last days of the temple, last days of the uh, Israel and all of the ceremonial laws, all of those types of things, it did indicate things were going to get worse and worse during the birth pangs of the kingdom. Now, Scripture describes those days from Christ to 70 A.D. as the time of birth pangs. And that's just, you know, the, the last days of the Old Covenant. So, the Bible talks about this uh, travailing in birth and giving birth during uh, the last days. Now, once 70 A.D. hit, the church grows so fast that within 250 years, a majority of Rome had become Christian. Now, was the church in the 4th century young and immature? Well, absolutely, it was. Uh, it was still growing, and we're still growing as a, as a church. So those are the first two stages, first two images, womb, dawning of the morning. The third and fourth images in verse 3 are the refreshing dew that waters the earth and the image of a youth. And I think it's such a beautiful picture of Pentecost. The dew represents the Holy Spirit. And it came down in the youth of His kingdom. In other words, the time of Pentecost is when Christ's kingdom is in its childhood. Uh, Some other indications of gradual progressive growth. Verse 4 says, He will relent. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. What does that imply? Well, it implies that there's resistance, there's enemies around, and it takes a while. He's, he's, He's still working on them. Secondly, it implies God will persevere. He's going to keep at it over a long period. And then verses 5 through 6 indicate that it's being advanced over quite a period because he's warring against nations. He's executing uh, heads of countries. Now, when you think about that, it makes perfect sense. Just think of how God sanctifies his, uh, his people individually. When we come to Christ, are we instantaneously sanctified? Well, obviously not. Uh, We grow over a whole lifetime. It's a gradual process as uh, He subdues our flesh and causes us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, if that's true, there's gradual progress in our individual sanctification. Why would it be difficult to believe that there would be gradual growth in His application of the kingdom and culture as a whole? Um, I'm not going to go over... Uh, I had written out, but it'd take too long. There are literally hundreds of scriptures that talk about the progressive, gradual growth of the kingdom. And I won't go into the the kingdom parables or Ezekiel's, you know, widening temple, but I just want to give you a mental picture that you can store in your mind. When you're thinking about the kingdom and how it develops, or you're thinking about this psalm and how it, uh, it would be fulfilled, put in your mind the picture of how the original conquest of the land of Canaan took place. Because Hebrews says that the conquest of Canaan is a picture of the advancement of the Great Commission. Now, when Joshua went into the land of Canaan, did he win the land in one day? Obviously not. Did he win it in one year? Obviously not. Even at the end of his life, there were still some enemies that needed to be subdued. He says in the beginning of Judges that God kept some enemies so that the church, I mean, so that Israel 
uh, would not grow lazy and fat. You know, they would have to be trusting in God's uh, grace. Then you've got hundreds of years of these judges. Sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good. Then you've got uh, Saul and David finishing off the job and then Solomon uh, having a reign of complete peace. Now that, I think, is a picture of the last 2,000 years of the progress of the church and who knows, maybe another 1,000 years that the Lord might bring. Let me read you Exodus 23, verses 29 through 30. God says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. So God's a God of order and He causes the kingdom to grow more and more as His people are ready. Let me repeat that. As His people are ready. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I ready for the Lord to give us more? Uh, Are we prepared to take the kind of dominion that God uh, uh, desires for us to have? Are we volunteers in the day of His power? And I've harped on this point, uh, spent a little bit more time on it because I've seen so many people discouraged. They get discouraged over their own personal sanctification. And uh, they wonder, how how come it is that I'm not perfectly holy? As uh, Rodney was mentioning, we all have sin. The Bible says it's there. And uh, if you have a false hope of instant sanctification, which some people are looking for, it will be very discouraging. And then there are others who have uh, a, a false hope in terms of how speedily maybe they're going to reform a party or win an election or get rid of abortion or something else like that. And they don't realize they've got to have long-term strategies. <clears throat> um, millennialist Herman Hanko said, The world is filled with sin and getting worse, a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage. Now, I want you to think about those words. Filled with sin, getting worse, hopeless, beyond repair, impossible. Are those words that describe your attitude toward life? Maybe your attitude to your own uh, personal sanctification. They ought not to be. They ought not to be. Those are words of people who are dreading every day because they're seeing every day Satan is the one who's gaining ground. Uh, they don't see God's kingdom is gaining ground. And it reminds me of the, the Peanuts comic strip that I read one time where Charlie Brown is castigated for being so negative all of the time. So he has a New Year's resolution. And he says, I have a new philosophy. I'm only going to dread one day at a time. <laughs> but we ought not to be dreading life as if all of life is conspiring together or to reverse Romans 8.28, all things are working against the church, you know, for its annihilation and for its uh, distinction. Instead, we ought to have such an incredible vision of Christ's kingdom that we are convinced it is Satan who is dreading every day. He is the one who was doomed and it doesn't matter how much this lion roars against the volunteers who are walking in the power of His Spirit, He will not be able uh, to stop the advancement of that church. That's what ought to grip uh, our souls. Uh, Yes, Satan can slow us down for a time. Uh, He can give us temporary setbacks. Uh, Yes, he can make make us backslide so that even God fights against us. But you know, even those things are designed to purify the church and to strengthen the church. Even the blood of the martyrs was designed to be the seed of the church where hundreds more come out of it. 
And this is one of many passages in the Bible that gives full-hearted hope and the power of the Gospel to conquer this world for King Jesus. When you begin to get discouraged over the state of America, stir up your faith by meditating on these words. Till, sit, footstool, your power, a womb of the morning, the dew of your youth, etc. They're designed to give us hope to encourage us. Okay, point seven, or the second point for today, is that Christ's reign advances through us, through His people. I love that first phrase in verse 3. It indicates we can never pit Christ's kingship against human responsibility. When the power of God came down upon the apostles and the believers at Pentecost, uh, it did not turn them into robots. Okay, this is the way some people accuse us. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then men are just robots. But look at the verse here, how it's worded. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Far from grudging submission, God's sovereign power produces willing submission. Volunteers. It makes God's people delighted to make sacrifices for their king. Now, what kind of volunteers are these? The Hebrew conveys the idea of signing up for the military. Uh, here's how one version puts it. Your people will volunteer when you call up your army. Uh, the old Geneva Bible, I think a couple of you have the old Geneva Bible that uh, the Puritans used, uh, captures it this way. Thy people shall come willingly at the time of assembling thine army. And so the imagery is of a general who's enlisting soldiers, and he's got a whole host of people who are gladly volunteering themselves for his service. Now, what kind of um, task do these people uh, take on? Well, they take on the same enemies that Jesus is fighting against in verses 1 through 2. There's your life call. You're trying to figure out, what's my calling in life? Well, your calling in life is to be an enlisted soldier to take on all of the enemies that Jesus uh, is taking on. We're not fighting a different war, nor are we passive on the sidelines while Jesus subdues His enemies. No, we're being led into battle. And again, think of the image that you put into your mind of Joshua and how he uh, conquered the land. God says, I give you the land. Okay, great. Do they just sit up on the bleachers and drink pop, eat popcorn and drink Coke and watch Jesus do all the work for them? No. They had to put their lives uh, on the line. Many times their livelihoods were put on the line in order to advance the cause and it took a long time. There was a lot of fighting that went on. No great task of any worthwhile has ever been achieved without personal sacrifice and work. You know, our founding fathers in America, they risked their lives and their fortunes and many lost both in order to give to their children the kind of liberties that they so longed for. And so that's point uh, number seven. Christ's reign advances through His people, through His volunteers, through their sacrifices. But point eight shows the nature of this kingdom. It's to advance the beautiful, glorious holiness of their Lord. Look at verse three and how it words it there. Verse three starts by showing who will advance the kingdom. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. He then gives the character of this kingdom that they're advancing in the beauties of holiness. He then indicates how it's going to. It's going to start small, grow over time from the womb of the morning. Then comes a description of the power that's needed to accomplish that growth. You have the dew of your youth, so we need the Holy Spirit. But the heart of that verse 
is the beautiful holiness that Jesus Christ desires to spread across this world. Our passion should be the passion of our Lord. Our passion should be the passion of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how is God's will done in heaven? It's done perfectly. Okay? Uh, in heaven, there, there's beauties of holiness in heaven. He is saying that what we should have is those beauties of holiness on earth just as they are uh, in heaven. Jesus tells His people in Matthew 5, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek it. Seek it. Seek it. That's what we're supposed to be seeking. This is the nature of His kingdom. In Isaiah 62, verse 2, He prophesies that that seeking will be successful. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. They're going to see the beauty of His kingdom. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It's not just in heaven. He's going to be doing it in the earth. Now, how is that righteousness advanced? If all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, as Isaiah 64 says, when it's done apart from Christ, then we've got a problem. And, of course, verses 3 and 4 solve that problem. How do we do it? We've already mentioned the do. That's the Spirit's power. But look at verse 4. He says, The Lord is sworn and will not relent. This means the solution is with God, not with man. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So, you could translate this, even though it's a name here. You are a king forever, according to the order... Excuse me, you are a priest forever, according to the order of a king of righteousness. Now, this means that Christ's kingdom and His righteousness is going to be extended through His priestly work and through His kingly work. Both of those are needed. Now, the kingly work's already been mentioned in verses 1 through 2, but he repeats it here again because it goes all the way through this chapter. Jesus is not just interested in your salvation from sin. He's interested in restoring you to righteousness. He's not just interested in being your priest. He's interested in being your king. Another way of saying it is he's not just Lord. uh, He's not just Savior. He's also Lord, right? Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Um. Uh, uh, he is called, uh, Melchizedek was called a priest and a king in Genesis chapter 14. So verses 1 through 2, they show Jesus as uh, king, even over those who don't acknowledge him, the enemies who don't acknowledge his kingship. Then verses 3 through 4 adds, he's also a priest. The salvation that this priest brings helps us to enjoy his kingship instead of suffering under his kingship. Now, let's just apply this to modern America. Should God's law be promoted in America? Now, some people say, well, yeah, eventually, but we've got to have evangelism first. Uh, You can't legislate morality. And my response is, morality is the only thing you can legislate. They're always legislating morality. It's good morality or bad morality, but you're always, with laws, legislating morality. But look at the progression that goes on in this psalm. It starts with kingship, confronting enemies. Then he speaks of priesthood in verse 4. Then he goes on to speak of judgment in verses 5 through 7 of those who neglect both his priesthood and his kingship. 
But Jesus doesn't wait for people to receive his priestly work before he rules as king. He rules as king regardless of whether they recognize it or not. Uh, And so, even if America is not Christian, it's still responsible to God's laws. Secondly, I think this helps to define what's a good method of evangelism. And we've talked about this before. The evangelists of old would start with the claims of God's law, you know, of their rebellion against their king, of the wrath that they are going to be facing from their judge. And it was only when they began to cry out for salvation that they preached the 20% of the gospel. It was not until people recognized that they are lost and hopeless and uh, damned for all of eternity that they really realize and appreciate the fact that there is salvation that is offered to them. And so whether you're talking individually or culturally, the law is always appropriate. It's a necessary aspect of Christ's kingdom. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, magistrates were converted and they imposed the law top down. Other times, there was revival amongst the people and it moved its way up uh, where uh, the the nation began to be changed from the bottom up, grassroots. Either way, it really doesn't matter. God can work. Uh, Either way, I think the grassroots approach is much more long-term, much more lasting, because all of the revivals that happened from the top down, as soon as the king died, they reverted back to the way they were. So it's not the greatest. Evangelism, I think, is our priority in in, uh, changing people's minds and discipling them. But I don't think we can separate his priestly and kingly work artificially. Think of it this way. If people are confronted by his kingship in their rebellion, what does it do? It drives them to his priestly work. If they've grown up in the church always knowing his priestly work in their lives, what does it do? It makes them enjoy his kingship better. So really hold the two together. They're not, they're, they're not in, in, in conflict at all. Third, it is holiness which makes Christ's kingdom beautiful. He speaks of it being in the beauties of holiness. Now, if you're trying to sell God's kingdom... <laughs> What, what kind of a product are you selling? Does it look beautiful or is it dressed in rags? What kind of a kingdom are you selling? Are you good ambassadors for the central purpose of His kingdom? Do you yourself love holiness? According to Romans chapter 11, when Israel was cast out, we received the riches of His kingdom. That's verse 11 or verse 12. But this display of those riches was designed to make the Jews jealous of the gospel, verse 11. And so Paul said in verse 14, he tried to live his life in a way that it would make other people jealous of what he had, desiring to have what he had. And what was true on an individual basis is true of cultures. When God's glorious, holy kingdom captures an entire nation, that nation will be so blessed by God that other nations will begin to envy the holiness that they see there. That's exactly what Deuteronomy 4 says the law was designed to do. It was to make people envy it. So that's the third application. Do we adorn ourselves with holiness? Do we make it beautiful to the world? There are many Christians today who are despising the very thing that Deuteronomy chapter 4 says should be beautiful in the sight of all nations. Uh, They point uh, God's gift Uh, think of God's gift of the law as being an ugly thing. 
But Isaiah 42, verse 4, prophesies that Christ's kingdom will advance to such a degree that, quote, the coastlands shall wait for His law. They'll see it as a beautiful thing. They'll say, wow, what nation has such great laws as this nation has? And they'll long for it. They'll become jealous of it. Now, the fourth application is that we should never seek holiness in our own strength. We need to seek Christ's life uh, to live it through us. And so receive your daily cleansing that Rodney talked about earlier from your priest. Receive your daily empowering uh, from your king. It's only through his grace we can live as we should. And then the fifth application is that this holiness does not happen all at once. It gradually advances in our lives individually. It gradually advances in culture. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So beauties of holiness it starts in the womb of the morning. It grows. Don't get discouraged. Just keep pressing upward. Point nine indicates that Christ's priestly kingship is cosmic in its scope. That means it's comprehensive in its scope. Verse 1 indicates He has authority in heaven. Verse 6 indicates He has authority on earth. Now, when was the time that Jesus was given all authority in heaven and on earth? Matthew 28 says it's already happened, right? So that would be encouraging. Now, unfortunately, even within reform circles, there's this tendency to be reductionistic. They just say the kingdom's within the church. But verse 2 indicates Christ rules within Zion. Yeah, that's within the church. Verses 2 and following indicate He rules outside of Zion. That's outside of the church. Verse 3 indicates He rules over friends. Verses 1, 2, 5, and 6 indicates He rules over enemies. Here's how David Chilton uh, worded it. Every aspect of life throughout the world is to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Families, individuals, business, science, agriculture, the arts, law, education, economics, psychology, philosophy, and every sphere of human activity. Nothing may be left out. Christ must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And all I can say is amen to that because uh, this ought to be something that uh, uh, thrills our souls. If His reign is cosmic, what we ought to do is try to get our kids to appreciate every aspect of this cosmos to His glory. And one of the ways you can do that, you know, that making doctrine relevant is to say, if this doctrine is true, then it ought to make a physicist just be passionate about discovering things at an atomic level. If this is true, it ought to make a, a chemist just love the fact that he is researching on how to overcome malaria. It ought to make a, an, an, an astronomer uh, figure out ways of undoing the humanistic evolutionary thought that is out there and giving glory to God through the stars that are out there. Uh, every aspect of life is relevant. And the, the hymn, All for Jesus, uh, should be our hymn. A tenth point is that God will not give up and neither should we. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. Relenting is exactly the problem that many of us have. We, we become overwhelmed, you know. It's just like, oh, the sin's so great and the enemies are so many, the problems are so huge, the rubbish, you know. And Nehemiah talks about the rubbish. It's just overwhelming. It's discouraging that we relent. We just give up. And I'm so thankful God does not give up just because we give up. And uh, He keeps picking us up and saying, no, keep on going. He dusts us off and sends us on our way again. But this is exactly what got the ten spies into trouble when they went into the land of Canaan. They saw the giants. They had very accurate, you know, uh, 
espionage and they realized, boy, there's, there's a big battle that's ahead of us. But instead of looking to the greatness of God, they just said, we've got to relent. We can't do this. During those times when we get discouraged and want to give up, what David is telling us to do is get your eyes off your circumstances. Get your eyes off of your weakness. Put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and His sufficiency. David didn't see himself as the answer. He saw Christ as the answer. Isaiah 42 says, Messiah would not grow discouraged or give up until he has established justice in the earth. Here's what Balliot said. The church has been paralyzed by its false, short-term, pessimistic, predestined view of the future. The enthroned Christ who has been given all authority and a power and authority and dominion has stretched forth his mighty hand to the paralyzed cripple and said, Arise, take up your mat and walk. And again, I say amen to that because... His power is sufficient. You know, the paralyzed person, he could do nothing. Well, of course, we can't do it in our own strength. But his strength is sufficient. And God will not go back on either his purpose to save or his purpose to rule through Christ. He, he has sworn and he will not relent. And there should be no going back for us either. Now comes the scary part of this psalm. Notice in verses 5 through 6 that Christ also brings judgment in history. It's not just a king not just a priest, he's also a judge. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Now, in some ways, those are very, very chilling words. Every nation that has been in rebellion against God down through history has had its day of judgment, its day of wrath. Now, does that mean that America is going to have a time when there's going to be high body counts and when there's going to be execution of leaders? I believe absolutely so, unless there is repentance. Uh, Psalm 2 says that Christ takes His rod of iron and He smashes every nation that does not kiss the Son. Every nation. So we're not an exception. There is no way we can escape without repentance when we have been killing millions of babies in, in, in America. Uh, there is no way he will turn a blind eye to pornography or to uh, sexual perversions or all of the other things. Leviticus 17 says, Move God to cast the nations out of the land of Canaan. He's given us up to a reprobate mind. I see the hand of God's judgment all over America. Now, verse 5 says, These judgments of Christ flow from heaven. The Lord is at your right hand. But then the rest of the passage indicates that what he is bringing from the right hand of the Father affects the earth. It affects kings, nations, places, bodies, heads of countries. This is very tangible stuff. God used a very tangible country or empire by the name of Rome to punish Israel. Then He turned around and He says He was going to punish Rome. Why? Because Rome was in rebellion against Christ as well. And the last 2,000 years has been a series of smashings from Christ with His rod of iron. And I don't believe we can be exempt. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about talking to other churches and bringing reform to families and churches and culture. I think we've got to have that if we're to escape His wrath. Now, the encouraging thing about these judgments is they're redemptive judgments. Most judgments down through history, there have been some exceptions, but they have been used to bring multitudes to a saving knowledge of Him. You can look across Africa and Asia and other places. They've been used to 
uh, save multitudes. And so all is not lost. Judgment on rebels many times results in rest for the church. And even the threat of judgment sometimes brings nations to repentance. So the rest of the Bible calls us to be in agreement with His judgments. Don't fear God's judgments. Be in agreement with His judgments. And one of the best ways you can be in agreement with His judgments is to pray the imprecatory prayers uh, against His enemies. Revelation 8 promises when the whole church will rise up and pray those imprecatory uh, prayers, God will answer in bringing judgments upon the earth. It describes there a censer filled with the prayers of the saints. And verses 5 and 6 say, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And then it speaks of regiment after regiment of warrior angels who are going out and bringing judgments upon the earth. So if Jesus is the general, we're volunteers in His army, that means we've got to take up this weapon, that rod of iron, by asking for God's judgments as well. And I think if we seriously began to do so, we'd see uh, some changes, advancement of God's kingdom as we've never seen it before. Now, ultimately, Jesus will gain the victory. Verse 4 says, God has sworn to it. His very integrity is at stake. Likewise, that's the symbol being portrayed in verse 7. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up his head. Here's how Isaiah 42 words it. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now that means we volunteers must not be discouraged. That means we must be dedicated. God never said that the conquest would be easy. Sacrifices are involved. God never said that sanctification would be easy. Sacrifices are involved. War always calls for sacrifices, and we're in a war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've got to be willing to make those sacrifices. Now, our sword is the Bible. This is the only weapon we have, is this Bible here. And our armor is the armor described in Ephesians 6. Our power is the power of the Holy Spirit. But our promise is that this general who is going before us is not going to go back to camp. He's going to continue pursuing, drinking from the brook instead of going back to refresh himself until every foe is vanquished. One of the professors at Westminster Seminary was talking with his just very young daughter and he said, uh, asked her if she knew what the book of Revelation meant. Yeah, Daddy, it means Jesus wins. And I think that's the best answer. He wins. He wins. Any way that you slice it, uh, he wins. And we need to keep that firmly in mind. During those times that you're discouraged with your growth in holiness, remind yourself Jesus wins and He's on your side. Remind yourself He's not going to give up until He takes you all the way to heaven as a bride without spot or wrinkles. So don't you give up on yourself and don't give up on others. God is with you. And when you're tempted to grow discouraged about other battles that are outside of the church, remind yourself that 1 Corinthians 15 quotes this psalm and interprets those enemies as all rule, all authority, all power, and all things in the world, and he indicates Christ is going to have to remain at the right hand of the Father, ruling until every one of these enemies is put under his feet. This was designed to bring us encouragement. Father, thank you for guaranteeing Christ's victory. Thank you for your judgments. Thank you for your salvation, which is offered to all full and free. We do not want to worship a God made in our own image. We want to see You as You are and to glory in Your plan for history. 
Thank You for giving us the privilege of being volunteers. We seek Your power to do so in holiness. We seek Your wisdom for our work. We devote our lives to Your cause. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.